Over the last few Sundays, we have embarked on a series of studies called What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. And in that broad sense of what do you believe, this morning we're turning to John chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to John 15, verses 1 through 11. For those watching us at home, if you're watching for the first time, it would be helpful for you to have your Bible open on your lap this morning as we begin to explore and immerse ourselves in this spectacular passage of Scripture. For those in the sanctuary, you'll find it on page 1676 of the Pew Bible that's available for you. Page 1676. John records these well-known words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in His love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete." Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. I mentioned moments ago that over the last few weeks we embarked on a series of studies entitled, What Do You Believe? And during that series, we will be exploring and navigating, or we have been rather, exploring and navigating our way around some of the cultural landmines and hot topics of our day. We will touch on issues of human sexuality, abortion, sexual identity, and marriage. We will also wrestle with how we respond as Christians to a society shaped by 24-hour news cycles, social media feeds, and the subtle but often unseen undercurrents of ideas, values, cultural artifacts, issues, institutions, and social constructions. And so that's where we've been over the next few weeks, or excuse me, over the last few weeks. And this morning we're going to break a little, but still under the title, What Do You Believe? Because this morning our focus will be not so much in living out your faith, but how do you cultivate, how do you build up that faith in order to live it out? 
And over the last few Sundays, we have indeed been dealing with some sensitive, controversial issues. And many of you have expressed how grateful you are for being able to do that. And so this morning, our focus shifts slightly, and then over the next few weeks, we'll return to our focus on what do you believe, culture, and faith. Now, this morning, as most of you are aware, as we come to John's gospel, John's gospel is a little different from the other Gospels. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known, as you know, as the Synoptic Gospels. And they're called by academics the Synoptic Gospels simply because the story of Jesus unfolds in a very similar pattern in the first three Gospels, almost as if you're looking at it through a single optic, hence the name Synoptic Gospels. But John is radically different, and it's different for several reasons. And one of the things you discover, the more familiar you become with John's gospel, is this, that the first half is dominated by dialogue between Jesus and several individuals. Some of you will remember from John chapter 3, you have the focus on Nicodemus, the religious leader, and we will spend a Sunday morning on Nicodemus in about three or four weeks' time. And then you have John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman by the well. And then John 5, the man beside the pool at Bethesda. And then John chapter 9, the man who had been ill for 38 years and, excuse me, I'm getting 5 and 9 mixed up. The man beside the pool at Bethesda had been ill for some 38 years and he had been there unable to get help until he encounters Christ. And then in John chapter 9, you have that wonderful story of the man born blind whose sight is is gradually restored. And some of you will remember it because it is so different because Jesus spits in the dust, makes a paste, wipes it on his eyes. And these stories and interactions between Jesus and individuals are not found in the other Gospels. And that's one of the reasons John is set apart. The other reason that John is set apart is that it is also dominated by dramatic and poignant moments. Dramatic and poignant moments that you find at the Feast of Cana in Galilee, Jesus' first miracle when he turns water into wine. The second is the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11, after Lazarus had been dead for three days. And then, of course, you have the washing of the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, each of them distinct to John's gospel. And the third reason that John is different from the other gospels is this, that most theologians of the gospels would say, excuse me, that most New Testament scholars would say that John is the most theological of the Gospels. Now, what, is the, what do they mean by that? Well, this is what they mean. John focuses on a deeper, more profound meaning of the life of Jesus. Now, let me explain. Events and miracles, in fact, in John are kept to a minimum. They are often used as springboards or signs that reveal important truths about Christ. The miracles never stand on their own. They always point to His identity. 
And then you also have John's use of language. And John uses language in a slightly different way. He uses key words that symbolize who Jesus is. He expresses spiritual ideas in spiritual language, offers a distinct portrait of Christ that has been cherished by generations of Christians seeking to grow in their faith. And that's exactly where we're going this morning. And the fourth and final distinguishing mark of John's gospel is this, that I am sayings. They're only found in John. Oh, excuse me. I don't seem to have the I am sayings uh, on slides this morning. And in fact, he has several of them. And the first is this, I am the bread of life. The second is, I am the good shepherd. The third is, I am the door into heaven. Then you have Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am the gate into heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the I am sayings are sprinkled throughout John's gospel as gradually, slowly, but surely the reader is drawn into John's gospel and being exposed again and again to who Christ actually is. And that leads us to John 15 this morning, where we read those remarkable words that begin this passage, I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. And so the question this morning is, why does Jesus use that phrase, and why does He use it at this point in the gospel? Now, remember the contextual backdrop is this, that the Last Supper has just taken place. At the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says, let us go up, let us get up and leave this place, and they're heading towards Gethsemane. And as they head in that direction, Jesus continues His teaching and says, I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. Now, not only are they heading towards Gethsemane, but in John 14, Jesus has said, I must go and leave you in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And the disciples are, quite naturally, unnerved. They're uncertain. They're unfearful. They're sensing that something extraordinary is about to happen, something dramatic and radical. And remember in John 14, He says to them, trust in God. Trust also in Me. And so, that gives you the contextual backdrop. And here we have Jesus now saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. But notice what else He says. He says of His Father, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And so, the question is, what is Jesus saying why is it significant, and why is it happening here? And I suspect Jesus is saying to His disciples, what is about to come is so significant, so important, pay attention. 
You may find it painful. You may find it difficult. You may struggle to get your head around it, but please understand this. Whenever my father is at work, he is like a gardener pruning away. And with that language, what does he mean? Well, he means this, that pruning by God the Father in our lives is always the secret to growth. Now, that's hard at times, because when God begins to prune in our lives, we don't always see it as a fruitful experience. We don't always see it as a positive experience. We don't always grasp what He is doing. But when He is pruning, He is taking away old and dead leaves. He is cleaning up the branches. He's cutting off branches that bear no fruit and He's pruning deeper and deeper. And for you and I, it often feels that as He prunes, He's going far too deeply, and He often uses difficult and challenging circumstances, and we feel it, and we feel it deeply, almost as if we're saying, Lord, that hurt. Why on earth would you prune that deeply? Stop it! And yet, he continues to remove those branches, or let me use contemporary language, he continues to remove from us patterns of behavior, ingrained habits, a thought process. As he begins to prune away and make us more and more fruitful, taking away old and dead growth, diseased branches, cleaning up the good branches. And please remember this, who is it that's saying this? Jesus is not saying this some, from some ivory tower position above contradiction. In fact, He knows exactly where He's going. He knows He's heading towards Gethsemane. He knows He is about to be pruned Himself at a level He would rather not, because remember, in Gethsemane, He says, Father, if there is an, a, another way, please let it be so, because He knows that He is about to be pruned. He is about to lose His life in our place. Not because He needed pruning, not because there were areas in His life that needed to be transformed and changed, the opposite. He came in our place, and that's why this morning we will gather around this table in a few moments to say, do this in remembrance of me. Remember all that was accomplished by Him. Remember all that He went through. And Jesus is saying to His disciples, if you are ever to be the people that I long for you to be, please be ready for some significant pruning. And I would have to tell you, and I suspect you would agree, 
that when God begins to prune us at that level, He moves us to a deeper place in our prayer life. He moves us to being more thoughtful and more considerate and more gracious, and He grants to us a deeper hunger and thirst and appetite for His presence. I'd also have to say this, when that happens, I would rather not, because quite frankly, I'm happy when I see any kind of growth. If there's a couple of leaves there, I pat myself in the back and say, this is wonderful. I can see some growth. Father, thank you. And he looks at me and shakes his head and says, Richard, it's not the green leaves I'm after, it's the fruit. And in order for the fruit to come, I need to prune deeply, and I need to prune rapidly. And please hear this. He is not interested in cosmetic surgery, but deep, pervasive, comprehensive surgery that works deep inside as He takes away complacency and indifference and moves us to that deeper walk with Him. Will it shake us? Will it challenge us? Will it move us heart and mind and soul to our knees? Of course, of course. That's why He does so. He wants us to be more fruitful. Now, please hear this. He doesn't stop there. Notice what he says next. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And he then goes on and says to the disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And likewise for us, when we spend time in his word, that is a cleansing, cathartic, at times challenging and deeply moving experience. And then he goes on and says in verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. What does he mean? If you remain in me, I will remain in you. Last year, we looked, in fact, earlier this year, we looked at the epistle of James for an extended period over two or three months. And there's that wonderful phrase in the epistle of James, and remember who James was. James was the brother of Christ. James didn't come to a living faith till after the resurrection. And so, James, as an older man, is looking back on his life and his relationship with Christ, and he says this, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's what's happening here. Remain in me. Stay close to me. Seek my presence. Look for moments of prayer and adoration and devotion, moments that are sweeter than anything we could ever imagine because He is close to us. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. It's about growth and development and fruitfulness. That's what He's saying. In days of prosperity 
and days of adversity remain in me. Days when you're going to a wedding and days when you're attending a funeral remain in me. Days when the market is up, days when the market is down remain in me. Days when things are going well with your family and your job as well as days of frustration and disappointment remain in me. When you're tempted to give up and surrender and walk away, remain in me. When you're tempted to pessimism and skepticism and critical of everyone and everything and you cannot get out of your own way and you're delighting in having a pity party, remain in me. When doubtful, confused, uncertain, fearful, remain in me. Now, you may well be saying, okay, Richard, I think I get what you're saying, and I think I see the point you're making. But Richard, all you're telling me this morning is exactly what I would expect a pastor to tell me on Sunday morning. <laughs> Richard, if you've had the week I had, you wouldn't glibly throw that out. If you'd had, in fact, the last six months, ten months, year that I have had, you wouldn't glibly just say that on Sunday morning. Really, remain in me, is that all you've got? Easy to see it, it's a different thing to live it. Oh, excuse me, I've gone too far. A year ago, I was recovering from surgery. In fact, a year ago this weekend. And there I am in intensive care after quadruple bypass. And you can see all of the instruments and the medical signs, which I'm eternally grateful for. I'm surrounded by it. Quite frankly, I have no memory of it. But I understand this. I understand the importance of remain in me. Good days and bad days days when you're not sure if you're going to make it or not. Remain in me. And that calls us to dig deep, to show perseverance, to be willing to be patient and allow Him to go to work, not resisting Him, but rather going along with Him. And notice what else the passage says. It doesn't simply say, remain in me. It says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. That's where the power comes from. That's where the power for commitment and rededication, and to be refreshed and restored and renewed by Him, because when we remain in Him prayerfully, dependently, He promises to remain in us. Let me close with a poem. And I've shared this poem with you before. It comes from Helen Malicote. And as Helen is writing it, she said, I'd had several tough days in a row, and I came to the phrase, I am. And this is what she writes. She writes, my name is I am. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not 
I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I'm not there. My name is not I will be. When you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is I am. This morning, as we gather around this table, not only do we seek to remain in Him, we also seek to remember all that took place at Gethsemane, all that took place at Golgotha, and that is where our faith is nurtured. That is where it is pruned. That is where fresh life is given to it. And this morning, as we participate and partake of this bread and this juice, we're reminded of the immensity and the overwhelming nature of His love. And as communion is distributed among us, and we become quiet, we take the bread and we drink the juice, we give thanks for all that He means to us, asking for His forgiveness, asking for His renewing touch, and then cautiously, prayerfully, sincerely, we also pray, Father, prune me, change me, allow me to be more Christ-like, that I might live for You. Enable me to remain in You, and You to walk close with me. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for your love and goodness this morning. Thank you for the reminder from John's gospel that you love us enough to prune us and change us and correct us and transform us. Enable us, please, this Sunday morning around this table to remember afresh all that was accomplished for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.